The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Joe Biden. He's the only leading Democratic candidate who has not signed the pledge to support whoever wins the party nomination. Why not? Ezra Levin of Indivisible will comment. Also, we're still thinking about Trump's indictment of Julian Assange for espionage. Bruce Shapiro will explain. But first, Last weekend, 14 Democratic presidential candidates all came to the same event, the California Democratic Party State Convention in San Francisco. But one big one was missing, Joe Biden. For comment, we turn to David Dayen. He's the new executive editor of The American Prospect. He's published widely at The Intercept, The Washington Post, The LA Times, and The Nation. His first book is the award-winning Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. David Dan, welcome back, and congrats on the new job at The Prospect. Yeah, thanks. I'm only going to be publishing at The Prospect from now on um, as their executive editor, and so that that is my my home, and uh, we're looking forward to great stuff there. Well, California. California will be an early primary state Californians will vote on Super Tuesday, which is March 3rd, 2020, only, what, eight months from now. You were in San Francisco last weekend. 5,000 delegates to the California State Democratic Convention were there, too, but Joe Biden was not. Why not? Well, I think he was there in spirit, uh, as, as we'll talk about. But, you know, Biden did this event in Ohio with the Human Rights Campaign. Uh, he said that was on the books for a while and that he will attend in November what is known as the Endorsing Conference, which uh, uh, will be in California in Long Beach. And there's going to be a candidate forum sponsored by Univision uh, at that event. The real reason, I think, is that Biden has generally run uh, what I guess I would call a front porch campaign. He has uh, tried to stay out of trouble by saying as little as possible and appearing in front of as few people as possible, uh, which, you know, front runners sometimes do. He seems to want to ride the coattails of being the vice president to a popular president and not get into trouble with his mouth as he's prone to do. And, and so that's the decision that he made. But uh, certainly, there definitely was an undercurrent of candidates testing out uh, potential lines of attack against Biden when he does actually have to have to face voters. And and face them in debates in just a few weeks. Well, one of those was a flyer that uh, you wrote about for the prospect. Tell us about that flyer. Yeah, so Roots Action released uh, this this sort of two-page flyer, which had a lot of quotes from prominent uh, liberal writers and also quotes from Biden himself that uh, were sure to uh, maybe antagonize some of the more progressive delegates. And these were passed out throughout the weekend. You know, things like uh, Biden saying that Dick Cheney was a good guy, that he said that uh, billionaires aren't the problem with America, they're, they're good people, things like that that uh, were, were, were sure to prick the uh, attention of uh, people who maybe favor other candidates. So Biden is the front runner, according to almost all the polls. You say he was a presence even in his 
absence, let's talk a little bit more about who went after him explicitly and uh, what lines of criticism did they raise? Yeah, well, nobody mentioned him by name. The closest would be Bernie Sanders, who talked about people who showed up to the convention and people who, for whatever reason, didn't want to show up in front of you. But there were definite undercurrents of the kinds of attacks that candidates might use to test out against Joe Biden. I think maybe the strongest one came from Elizabeth Warren, who really uh, uh, put in her seven-minute campaign speech uh, to the delegates this this idea that uh, we, we can't just think small, we can't nibble around the edges when we need big structural change for problems that even predated Donald Trump. She said that any time that someone tells you to relax and, 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 and just think small and, and go slow, uh, what they're actually telling you uh, as, a, as a politician is that they're not going to fight for you. And I, Elizabeth Warren, will fight for you. So I think that's something you can see uh, come up in the next few weeks uh, during these debates. There were similar lines from uh, people like Pete Buttigieg, who said uh, we we can no long we we can no more as Democrats promise to go back to the 90s as as conservatives can say they want to go back to the 50s. And Cory Booker said something similar, and 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 Bernie Sanders' entire speech was posited on this idea of no middle ground, which is a reference to what Biden's uh, environmental policy aid. Uh, Heather Zischel said about his climate policy that it would be a middle ground. Of course, he released that uh, earlier this week, and uh, he was criticized by some, uh, including Jay Inslee, for it not going far enough. And so uh, Sanders' entire speech was about how we we must have no middle ground on these uh, very crucial debates, whether you're talking about climate change or uh, reproductive choice or inequality. Or, or foreign policy. So, uh, you know, we, we definitely saw a lot of almost testing of the waters here of how, how these candidates are going to go after uh, the front runner in this race. Well, the pundits tell us that because California is so big, money is everything in this primary because political campaigns are uh, de- extremely dependent on TV ads, and they say candidates will in, in the primary will need at least $5 million to be competitive, and there's only a few who are going to raise $5 million. That's certainly Bernie Biden, probably Kamala Harris, since she's from here, probably maybe Elizabeth Warren, uh, if she does okay in Iowa and New Hampshire. I wonder if you agree with the pundits on the importance of uh, money in TV ads in California. I went to uh, an event at the Santa Monica Public Library for Amy Klobuchar, not a top-tier candidate necessarily, and they had an overflow crowd. So I think California Democrats are really desperate uh, for this retail campaigning, this attention that Iowa and New Hampshire voters get every four years with the, the shaking of the hands and the, the, the picture-taking and the, and the direct uh, dialogue. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see some big crowds. It is such a big state that it is very difficult to, to have a retail strategy here for any statewide candidate. So, so yes, money is definitely going to play uh, a big role. But I do think there is a hunger 
for uh, uh, to to really talk to candidates, to uh, see them in person, to get their their you know, perspective uh, as as a prerequisite to, to securing that vote. Well, in the 2016 California primary, three years ago, Hillary got 53 and Bernie got 46 and nobody else got anything. Do you think that means that Joe Biden will inherit uh, Hillary's majority and that I guess then the Bernie votes, would some of them would go to Elizabeth Warren and maybe others would get uh, a few? Is that is that a reasonable way to look at it? I mean, we don't know what the field is actually even going to look like by the time California votes. What California has had, by the way, early voting, uh, uh, an early spot on the, the primary calendar, uh, re- as recently as 2008, uh, it was part of Super Tuesday. Um, and what we learned there is that because of the delegate allocation, there really isn't one vote in, in California, but it's based on pro- uh, the congressional districts. There's almost a different election in every congressional district, and the the delegates uh, that come out are allocated uh, by that congressional district, and you have to get a pretty significant spread of the vote in order to win a significant number of delegates over your challengers. And, of course, you have to get 15% of the vote even to get any delegates at all out of a particular district. Because we don't know really where uh, it's, it's going to land, I don't think we can say, well, this, this was the, the final vote tally in 2016, and, and, and you know, that we'll map Biden onto Clinton and, and Bernie and Warren onto, uh, onto Bernie, and, and that's how it's going to go. There, there are a lot of candidates. I think uh, California voters are, are, are open to plenty of them. Uh, I, I don't think Biden has a lock on this place. I don't think Kamala Harris, even though she's the home state senator, has a lock. And so uh, there, there's going to be a, some vigorous competition here, uh, provided that these candidates make it to Super Tuesday. I, I, I don't think it's a given that uh, all of them uh, make it past Iowa, and I don't think it's given that all of them make it to Iowa. But, you know, who knows? David Dayen, he's the new executive editor of The American Prospect, where he wrote about how, in California, Democratic hopefuls countered Joe Biden's status quo politics. David, thanks so much for talking with us today. All right, thanks. Start Making Sense is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of classes covering dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography and creative writing to design, productivity, and more. For example, the course Creative Nonfiction, Write Truth with Style, is taught by Susan Orlean, the best-selling author and longtime New Yorker staff writer. So whether you're returning to a longtime project, challenging yourself to get outside of your comfort zone, or simply exploring something new, Skillshare has classes for you. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for our listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering Start Making Sense listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com forward slash sense. Again, go to Skillshare.com forward slash S-E-N-S-E to start your two months now. 
That's Skillshare.com forward slash sense. We're still thinking about Trump's indictment of Julian Assange on espionage charges. For the latest on what's happening with that case and the effort to extradite him from prison in Britain to stand trial in the United States, we turn to Bruce Shapiro. He teaches ethics at Columbia University School of Journalism, and he's executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. That's a resource center for journalists covering violence, conflict, and tragedy. He's co-author of the book Legal Lynching, The Death Penalty in America's Future with Reverend Jesse Jackson and Jesse Jackson Jr. And he's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Bruce Shapiro, welcome. Glad to be here. Well, big picture, Julian Assange is one of the most hated people in the world for liberals and many leftists. He worked to help Trump win the election. He's being investigated for rape in Sweden. And yet we are defending him on these latest charges. Remind us why. Well, what we are really defending is not the character of Julian Assange or the political judgment of Julian Assange but his rights as a publisher and the rights of all publishers and journalists to receive leaks, to receive classified information, to publish controversial material. This is a crucial test for investigative journalism as a whole, not just for WikiLeaks, not just for Julian Assange. The stakes have changed, John, since a couple months back, the Justice Department filed one charge against Mr. Assange, uh, a charge involving password hacking. A couple weeks ago, with Assange securely in custody in Britain and the clock running on the ability to amend an extradition request, the Trump Justice Department decided, by the way, over the objections of career prosecutors, to greatly expand the list of charges against Assange, and in particular, to add 17 new charges under the Espionage Act, the descendant of the law which uh, in the 1920s was used to put Eugene V. Debs in jail, uh, for his arguments against conscription in World War One, and in particular to charge him essentially with trying to convince his source, Chelsea Manning, to give up secrets and collaborating with Chelsea Manning and keeping her identity secret. This is what reporters do all the time. And whatever you think of Assange's political judgment, whatever you think of his character, the consequences of these quite unprecedented charges would be to criminalize similar publication by far more savory or far more reputable or far more sound in judgment publishers and journalists going forward. The addition of the Espionage Act charges means that really this is no longer about Julian Assange. The abstract danger that many of us have worried about since Assange was first charged and first held for extradition now has become very real, the literal criminalization of investigative reporting. 
Well, the Washington Post ran an opinion piece recently arguing that the Assange indictment was not an attack on journalists everywhere. They said Assange's case is a unique one. This is somebody named Randall Eliason, a law professor at GWU. He says this uh, indictment is probably a one-off I'm quoting, it involves not a routine leak, but one of the largest disclosures of classified information in American history. Uh, Justice departments have taken great pains to note the, in the indictment. They've noted the department's respect for the role of the media. It's hard to imagine that even this administration would willingly ignite a constitutional conflagration. I wonder if you agree that this is a unique case. <laughs> Well, first of all, you know, that last idea that this administration would somehow step back from a constitutional conflagration is comes from someone who clearly has not been reading the newspapers. <laughs> um, this is an administration that has sought constitutional confrontation over congressional subpoena power, that has sought congressional uh, constitutional confrontation over presidential emergency powers, that has sought uh, constitutional confrontation over virtually every controversial assertion of power that it has made. But look, I think there are also several problems with this argument, which I should say the Justice Department under Attorney General Barr has also made. The Justice Department has said, we don't view Assange as a journalist. We view him as having committed espionage. Professional journalists are, are not included in this. There are several reasons why this is wrong. First of all, the First Amendment is bigger than narrowly defined professional journalists. The First Amendment actually says nothing about journalists. It protects publishers. And whether or not you think that Julian Assange is a journalist, which some of my colleagues argue about, and in my view he is, he's engaged in, in journalistic work, however controversial and however sometimes um, of questionable ethics in his treatment of, of sources, He's more than a journalist. He is a publisher. He's publishing government secrets, and it's publication that the First Amendment was designed to protect. I want to talk about the other part of this case. The Americans are trying to extradite Assange from Britain to stand trial for espionage. The Swedes have been trying to extradite Julian Assange for an investigation of rape. This is not yet an indictment or a criminal charge, but... After the Me Too movement, issues like this are taken more seriously than when they were first filed. Uh, last month, more than 70 British lawmakers signed a letter urging the British judge in the extradition proceeding there to give priority to the request from Sweden. They wrote, quote, we must send a strong message of the priority the UK has in tackling sexual violence and the seriousness with which the allegations are viewed. We urge you to stand with the victims of sexual violence and seek to ensure that the case against Mr. Assange can now be properly investigated. Close quote. What about that? I'm all for it. First of all, the charges against Julian Assange, sexual assault under the particulars of Swedish law in that respect, are serious. And if Assange had given himself up for questioning during the Obama administration. We now know that the Obama administration had no intention of extraditing him because the Obama administration believed in um, First Amendment and was not going to do it. So Assange would have been better off 
the question of whether he committed sexual assault under Swedish law could have been investigated, if appropriate, adjudicated, and settled. So, A, it's important that this go forward. B, there is a politics to this request to prioritize the extradition to Sweden. Essentially, it would slow down Assange's extradition to the United States. And indeed, there's reason to think that either a British or a Swedish court might have some reason now, with these new Espionage Act charges, to look a second time at what otherwise would have been a routine extradition. The um, international extradition law prohibits extradition in what are considered to be political charges. Now, sexual assault is not a political charge. It's an ordinary criminal charge. And Julian Assange should be questioned, should have that charge investigated, should be tried under Swedish law. Extradition for espionage and extradition, in this case, for publishing public interest state secrets in the United States is explicitly a political charge. And Assange's attorneys have already said they intend to put this at the heart of their request, whether it is to a British court or a Swedish court. And just because a Swedish court may choose, depending on the investigation, to indict Assange for sexual assault, doesn't mean that a Swedish court is going to be ready to hand him over to the United States. The Trump administration has actually made its own case harder, whether it's with Sweden or Britain, by throwing the Espionage Act book at the founder of WikiLeaks. Bruce Shapiro, he wrote for The Nation that Trump's charges against Julian Assange would effectively criminalize investigative journalism. You can read his piece at thenation.com. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about Indivisible, the nationwide progressive grassroots organization that's campaigning to defeat Trump. For that, we turn to Ezra Levin. He is co-executive director of Indivisible. Previously, he served as deputy policy director for Congressman Lloyd Doggett, who represents Austin, Texas, in the House. Ezra Levin, welcome to the program. John, thanks for having me. Well, first of all, remind us about Indivisible. What exactly is it? Yeah, Indivisible is this nationwide movement of locally-led progressive groups all around the country. They're literally in every single congressional district in the country, from the reddest red to the bluest blue to the purplest purple. There are Indivisible groups organizing uh, to uphold progressive values. And they started immediately after the Trump's election. Leah Greenberg, who's my spouse and the other co-executive director, we, um, we were both former congressional staffers. We wrote this guide called the Indivisible Guide shortly after Trump was elected that basically said, hey, we were on Capitol Hill during uh, the rise of the Tea Party. We disagreed with just about everything they did, their ideology, um, some of their tactics, their racism, but we thought that they were really smart on strategy. Organize locally, focus on your elected officials, and never give an inch. Um, and so we put the guide out and uh, shockingly, John, people read it, and then even more shockingly, they actually formed these <laughs> indivisible groups all over. And so for the past two and a half years, we've been leading this uh, national organization supporting those groups all over the country. And what exactly is the Indivisible Pledge? So the Indivisible Pledge is something that we launched just a few weeks ago. And we launched it because 
there are, and gosh, I haven't checked my phone recently, but at most recent uh, check, we had 24 people running for president on the Democratic side. Uh, here's the thing we know, John. Uh, 23 of those people are not going to become president. That's just math. Indivisibles are dedicated to replacing Trump with a, a president who isn't uh, determined to destroy American democracy. And so that means that we need to engage in the primary. We ought to be uh, debating the future of the Democratic Party, the future of the progressive movement. That's important. We ought to engage in the primary. And also, we have to recognize that at the end of the day, we're going to rally around whoever wins and beat Trump. Um, and so the pledge has two parts. There's a pledge for our grassroots groups and their grassroots members, and then there's a pledge for presidential candidates. And signers of the pledge agree to three things. One, they agree that they're going to engage in this primary, and they're going to make it constructive. We're going to debate this future of the progressive movement. Two, they're going to agree that after the primary is over, after we've selected a Democratic nominee, we're going to endorse that nominee. Uh, and three, they agree that it's not just endorsing. We've got 16 weeks between the Democratic National Convention in 2020 and the election in November 2020, and we have to spend every single week ensuring that Donald Trump isn't president in 2021. The language of the presidential candidate pledge says, I will put myself at the disposal of the winning campaign. So it is a pretty high bar. Frankly, I... I was not worried about our grassroots members. I wasn't worried about the indivisible groups. That's where they are. They are engaging the primaries. They did this in 2017 and 2018, and they know that we're going to rally around the winner. I was hopeful that we would be able to get the presidential candidates to agree to this as well, and many, many of them have. Actually, as of right now, every Democratic presidential candidate in the primary that's polling at 1% or more has now signed the indivisible pledge with just one exception. One candidate has not signed. Who is it? That candidate is Joe Biden. And now I will say we have been talking to Joe Biden's campaign. Um, we are in communication with him. We are hopeful that he will indeed get on the pledge. And if he doesn't, he's going to be hearing from more and more constituents. You know, there was an indivisible group uh, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh, and one of their members came out to a campaign event a few weeks ago with Joe Biden um, shook his hand and asked him to sign the pledge, and then gave the pledge to his staff. So we know he has it. We know he's considering it. And we're hopeful that before the first debate, he'll also be on board with this plan. I just have to speculate a little a little bit. Why wouldn't Joe Biden want to sign the pledge? Is it possible that he's telling us that if he lost the nomination to Bernie, he would not support Bernie? Uh, you're going to have to ask Joe Biden that. Um, I think... From the indivisible group's point of view, you know, we, we're going to have disagreements about who the best candidate is. And that's fine. That's natural. That's what primaries are for. We ought to be asking people, what is your position on climate? What is your position on taxes? What's your position on immigration? We should be having these debates. But for indivisibles, we understand that at the end of the day, those differences are small compared to the differences between these 24 candidates and Donald Trump. So it's not a high bar for them, because we all know what we're going to be doing the weekend after the Democratic National Convention. We've already started registering unity events all over the country. These indivisible groups in key states have already started registering these events for more than a year out. So it's not a question. This shouldn't be a question for any of the candidates themselves, because we should all recognize the existential threat that Donald Trump 
poses to American democracy. And we should be unified around this idea that we got to unify around the ultimate nominee. If it's Bernie Sanders, if it's Elizabeth Warren, if it's Cory Booker, if it's Joe Biden, we should all get aligned that that's what we should do. Now, if candidates are refusing to sign this pledge in the primary, I think they're going to find that primary voters are going to have a second thought about whether to vote for them. Because if you're not willing to agree to that basic condition, why should we support you in the primary? Indivisible has some other issues. Uh, High on the list is impeachment. On Tuesday in the New York Times, uh, op-ed columnist Michelle Goldberg had some amazing statistics on the high proportion of Democratic voters who favor opening an impeachment inquiry. What is Indivisible arguing now about impeachment? We have actually polled our groups on this, and we've been talking to them a lot, too. It's worth noting, again, that Indivisible is not the uh, the Ezra Levin movement or the Leah Greenberg movement. We are a movement of folks all across the country who are leading this. So we don't make just about any big strategic decisions, uh, like whether or not to push for impeachment, without asking our groups what they think. And what we've heard is is loud and clear. What we hear is uh, actually more than 80% of the indivisible groups who we've surveyed recently are in favor of starting impeachment proceedings. And that's all over the country. That includes swing states, that includes purple districts, uh, in addition to city centers, in addition to, to blue states. And so we, we take that to heart. We want to be sure that we are uh, making sure that the indivisible groups have their voices heard on this issue. And we understand that even good progressives, well-meaning progressives, disagree on this. I think what you would hear from some folks in Democratic leadership uh, is not disagreement around whether Donald Trump has committed impeachable crimes. I think Nancy Pelosi and and um, Representative Hoyer and others say that, yes, this, this man is unfit to be president um, and would probably say that, yes, we believe that he is committed impeachable crimes, the same, the same as individuals would say. Um, that's not what's up for debate. I, I think what we hear from House Democratic leadership is maybe this is going to hurt us in 2020. Maybe this isn't the politically smart thing to do. And, you know, I, I hear that argument, and I think individuals are grappling with that as well. But we also see the other side. Indivisibles got started in 2017 to fight against Trump care, to fight against Supreme Court nominee, to fight against rescinding of DACA. They started building the wave in 2018, registering voters, endorsing candidates, getting out to vote, because they wanted a check on this administration. And they were promised that when they did all that work, week in and week out, to make Nancy Pelosi Speaker of the House, to put Democrats in charge of the oversight apparatus, that we would actually get a check on this administration. That's what was promised. Now, we've heard from Mueller. We've heard from him himself essentially saying that it is up to Congress now to hold this man accountable, that his office couldn't do it. But now it is up to the House to move forward with impeachment proceedings. Mueller all but said that that is the next step. If Democrats fail to actually do their job, I worry about the political consequences there as well. I worry that it makes them look weak. I worry that it makes it look like they are betraying the grassroots that put them in power. And that has a negative political consequence as well. I can't tell you which one's bigger. I can't tell you if uh, starting impeachment proceedings will ultimately hurt us more or help help us more. And, and given that, given that basic uh, inability to predict the future, I think Democrats should just do their job. They should just do the right thing. And when we talk to indivisible groups around the country, they tell us the same thing. 
They would like to see impeachment proceedings begin. They would like Congress to actually do its constitutional duty. So uh, we've been talking with groups. We're participating in a, a June 15th National Day of Action. It's indivisible, but it's not just indivisible. Uh, it's a whole bunch of national organizations coming together to make clear that we expect House Democrats to actually do what they were elected to do. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Ezra, I looked at the indivisible map for Minnesota, and the indivisible groups in Minnesota are everywhere. There must be 50 or 60 or 70. I looked like on the north shore of Lake Superior territory, which I know pretty well. It's not just Duluth, Bernie campaign there in 2016. There's also a Two Harbors Indivisible. There's an Indivisible Huddle in Silver Bay. There's an Afterburners group in Grand Marais, which is the last thing before the Canadian border. Who organized all these groups? What, what's going on in Minnesota? What's going on in Minnesota, I will say, is what's going on in all 50 states. Uh, you know, Indivisible didn't start as some sort of, you know, command and control hierarchy where we traveled the country like Johnny Appleseed for civic engagement, starting all these groups. We, we released the Indivisible Guide. Uh, it went viral. Folks across the country, including throughout Minnesota, picked up the guide and started these groups. And I will say, I, I have a, um, a, a particularly soft spot in my heart for the Indivisible groups in Minnesota because uh, Leah and I uh, both went to school at Carleton College in, in, um, uh, just south of the Twin Cities. And, in fact, Minnesota 3 Indivisible, um, which is re- represents around the, the Minneapolis area, they have their own podcast. So there's ah. a Minnesota 3 Indivisible podcast, and Ali and I have both gone on that at least a couple times. Um, and they, you know, did incredible work, not just, you know, setting up their own podcast, not just fighting against a Trump care bill, but they actually mobilized behind uh, the new representative, Dean Phillips, who just recently got elected, is a freshman member uh, and replaced Eric Paulson, who is a Republican representing that district and actually voted for the bad stuff that Trump is pushing. Well, I'm sorry we're out of time. We've been speaking with Ezra Levin. You can learn more about Indivisible at indivisible.org, where you can also find your local groups. And there are groups everywhere in the United States. Ezra, thanks so much for talking with us today. Hey, John, thank you so much for having me on. Finally, the Virginia delegate who isn't afraid to be called a socialist. This week on the Next Left podcast, John Nichols talks with Lee Carter, who says your elected representative is part of the problem. That's Virginia socialist Lee Carter with John Nichols this week on the Next Left podcast. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com or wherever you get your podcast. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week. 
for more political talk without the boring parts. 